You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we have a somewhat different topic to discuss, but it's one that is most definitely relevant to the management of waterfowl in North America. It's actually in a similar vein as our previous discussion about university hunt programs. But today, we're going to be talking more specifically about women in waterfowl, mostly about women in the profession of waterfowl management and wetlands conservation. But we're going to talk about women in hunting as well. Now, obviously, I'm going to need some help with this discussion, and I'm excited to let you know that we indeed have three most excellent guests joining me. So with that, let me welcome them in. First, and a return guest to the show, Dr. Susan ellis Feligi, Associate Professor of Biology at the University of North Dakota. Susan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And a distinguished guest in her own right, and a first-time guest on the Ducks Unlimited Incorporated podcast, Dr. Carla Gwynn, CEO of Ducks Unlimited Canada. Carla, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, Mike. Carla, I had to add the part about first time appearing on the Ducks Unlimited Incorporated podcast because I think you have appeared on the DU Canada podcast before, right? That is correct. I have been on our podcast, which is called In the Reeds. And you may be the first person to appear on both of these podcasts. That just occurred to me. I could be. We'll have to go back and check that, but very well could be the case. Uh, Maybe... Maybe Dale Robleski, your your uh, your colleague there, he would uh, he would also be in that category, I think. Small small group though, small group. Yeah, it's a rare company. And, and our third guest, also a return guest on the Ducks Unlimited podcast, Casey Setash, PhD student at Colorado State University. Welcome back, Casey. Hi, happy to be here. We're going to start out by affording each of you an opportunity to give a very brief uh, 
professional bio, what it is that you, where you are and, and what it is that, that you're doing. We're going to have an opportunity here in a few minutes to go into much more detail about how you came into this profession. Um, but so just to give, I, give people um, an idea of what it is you're doing right now. Let's just go with that kind of introduction. Let's start with, with you, Susan. So I'm uh, an associate professor at the University of North Dakota. So that's in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um, and I've been doing that for, oh my gosh, I think this is the start of my ninth year now. Um, and I focus on wildlife and, and um ecology and management here at the university. So I do research, I do teaching and a variety of different service type mentoring opportunities. Um, I've been working with Ducks Unlimited quite a bit, um, doing a variety of research with um, nesting birds here in central North Dakota on the DU's Coteau Ranch. And um, I've also done a, a fair bit of work with the Hudson Bay Project with snow geese um, up near Churchill, Manitoba. Um, I'm in my job, I get a lot of exciting opportunities to, to work with wonderful people, especially um, the students that I get a chance to um, go out on the projects with. And that's certainly a big highlight to, to introduce them to the world of, of waterfowl ecology and management. Cool. Thank you. And so for people that may want to learn more about the research that that you've done, they can go back into uh, into an earlier couple of episodes where we talked about some of your work related to uh, using camera technologies to monitor what, monitor what happens at duck nests and also some use of drone technology for various applications in, in waterfowl research. So I'd encourage our listeners, if you didn't have a chance to, to catch those episodes, Dr. Feligi is uh, was gracious with her time previously, and we have two full episodes to, to hear more about that research. So, Carla, let's go to you now. Give our give our people an, an idea of what it is that you do right now. Well, currently I am the Chief Executive Officer for Ducks Unlimited Canada. I'm just heading into my fourth year in that position, uh, but I've been with Ducks Unlimited Canada as an employee for close to 23 years and I even did my graduate work with, with Ducks Unlimited Canada. So a long, long period of time with the organization. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with Ducks Unlimited Canada, um, we have uh, about 400 employees and we have offices spread all across Canada from Amherst, Nova Scotia to Surrey, British Columbia, all the way up to Whitehorse and Yellowknife in the territories. I didn't realize it had been four years uh, since you were, were hired as the CEO. Man, time flies, doesn't it? It sure does. Goes by quick. <laughs> well, you're doing a great job. And thanks so much for sharing your time with us and joining us here. And, and Casey, uh, as I mentioned previously, a repeat guest on the show here. Uh, we had... Um, had you on to talk about cinnamon teal, actually a couple of episodes, cinnamon teal, as well as some of your research that you're doing. But uh, for those that happen to miss that episode, I, those episodes, I would, number one, encourage them to go back and listen to them. Number two, what I want to do also is just have you uh, reintroduce yourself to the people that, that, may not have, that may have missed those episodes. Yeah, so I'm a PhD student at Colorado State studying with Dave Coons, and I am focused on breeding waterfowl and flood irrigated agricultural systems. Uh, specifically in Colorado, but hopefully to be applied elsewhere as well. Cool. Thank you for, for joining us again here, Casey. So with that, we'll, we'll transition to get into the, into the topic, the women in waterfowl. And as I mentioned, mostly we're going to talk about this from a professional standpoint, the career standpoint, but, but also we'll touch on hunting as well because it is definitely related. And so when we start to think about this particular topic, it's, it's no secret that 
to anyone familiar with this, uh, with waterfowl management, natural resource conservation management in general, it's, it's no secret that historically speaking, the overwhelming majority of professionals in these fields have been men and white men at that. And this has been reflected at every stage in the profession, from college enrollment to professional employment. Uh, but just as in most other areas of the professional workplace, if we look across North America uh, and worldwide, uh, frankly, uh, the number of women in the workforce and in positions of leadership is, is on the rise. And that's an exciting thing. And so we're going to bring that story to you. Um, so I think it's fair to say that those advancements have lagged, nevertheless, in our profession a bit more so than in other mainstream areas. But we are starting to make some progress. Now, we do realize that this conversation about uh, women in, in this profession, in, in leadership positions, is not entirely independent of a broader conversation about diversity and equality uh, in society and in employment in general. And we will have an opportunity in the future to have that discussion. But, but for this episode, it's actually one that we've been planning for for quite a few months, we want to kind of restrict this to the discussion about uh, gender diversity, gender equality within this profession. So that's going to be the focus of the discussion. Now, we're going to get into questions about why this is so important and beneficial as we, as we get into this. Uh, but at a, at a most basic level, there is a significant and exciting trend within our profession of there being more women among our ranks. We have three of them here joining us as guests. And so we actually heard about this in a previous episode with Dr. Je Drs. John Eady and Kevin Ringelman and two of the other, the, uh, Maddie McFarlane and Julie Wynn, um, through their discussion of the university hunt programs. And John and Kevin were describing to us the trends that they had seen in their enrollment uh, in their college programs, and it's increasingly um, becoming, a, a, you know, a female-dominated kind of enrollment, more so in, in some regions than in others. And so we're also seeing this as we move up through the profession, uh, but there are some other, some kind of nuances to that, to, to that part of the discussion as well, and we will get into that. But this is an important conversation. It's an important conversation for the profession, but it's also a very important conversation for, um, for waterfowl, wetlands conservation in general, and and, and it relates to our supporters and how we interact with our supporters and our constituents. And so it's just something that we wanted to bring to the people and, and, and kind of help, help this conversation along. So as we've already heard, we have three outstanding guests to assist here. I'm very much going to need the assistance, and I'm going to let most of them do the talking, at least once I get beyond this, this introduction. Um, so with that, I think what we'll do is we'll start out by giving each of them an opportunity to... Um, to provide a more detailed description of how they actually got into this profession, what attracted them to, to the natural resources profession and then the waterfowl profession and wetlands conservation profession. So you're going to hear in their own words you know, their story. And we have a host of other questions that we're going to get into as we go through this. So with that, I'll start being quiet. And I'm going to turn to Susan first and ask her to just kind of walk us through her story of how she became interested in this field and how she, uh, how she came to be uh, at North Dakota. Thanks, Mike. Um, so I grew up in uh, a rural part of Western Pennsylvania. Uh, my dad was a very avid hunter, um, especially with waterfowl. And he was also a part-time game warden. He did that on the side and ultimately ended up retiring after I believe it was 42 years working as a, a game warden for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. 
Um, and he was also a really devoted um, Ducks Unlimited supporter. So I grew up seeing a lot of that very early on. And initially there were, there's two of us, my sister and I, um, who I think he didn't expect to be so enthusiastic about hunting, but we both um, really wanted to go hang out with dad, love the outdoors. We're, you know, very used to, to being outside. And so he took us um, along and pretty soon he realized he needed to get us each um, a puppy. One of us ended up with a lab, the other a Chesapeake. We had quad parkas, Benelli shotguns, and uh, two trips to Saskatchewan. And he had two daughters who were absolutely hooked after that um, to, to waterfowl, to hunting, to the outdoors. Um, and with that, um, because I got to do that, I got I went out, I saw the prairies, um, and it was those trips to Saskatchewan that, that I fell in love with the prairie. I fell in love with the duck factory. Um, and I realized its importance and I was excited by it. Um, <clears throat> and my dad having connections with the Pennsylvania Game Commission took me to um, go out and ban ducks when I was about 13 years old. And I still have the journal actually um, where I wrote about, um, I used to write a lot about my hunting experiences and I wrote about going duck banding. And that was the day I declared I was going to be a waterfowl biologist. I was, I was hooked on that. And so I went on um, to, to study at uh, Penn State Barron, which is the second largest Penn State campus. I, I wasn't really excited about going to a huge campus. I was a, a small town girl and I wanted to be at a, a small, sort of small town college, if you would. Um, and so that's in Erie, Pennsylvania. And the cool thing that attracted me there was that there was a lot of opportunities for undergraduate research. And so I was able to, to get engaged in that. And um, at the same time, as soon as I turned 18, I had been volunteering with the Game Commission every summer, every opportunity I could get out with them. And so I got hired to work as one of their um, technicians in the migratory bird section. And so that just kept feeding my excitement and enthusiasm. And I, I majored in um, biology with an ecology emphasis. And then uh, I got a minor in math, realizing that, you know, you got to you got to actually count these things. And there's a little bit of trouble with that because most most animals don't stand there and say count me count me so it would be good to have some good quantitative skills and so after um, going through my undergrad as I was getting towards the end of that I asked some folks about recommendations about grad programs because I knew in order to really break into this field it was becoming very evident that a graduate degree was going to be needed no matter whether I went to waterfowl or what but anything wildlife was needing that and um, I got some different advice about how to blend maybe some of those quantitative skills with um, my passion for, for wildlife, for conservation. And that took me to the University of Georgia. And although I really wanted a waterfowl project, I couldn't find something that was a right fit, the timing, the, you know, everything there. And so I, I landed uh, an opportunity to work with Bob White Quail. And so I took a slightly different path than a lot of people when it comes to waterfowl and, and getting there. Um, but it was a great fit in terms of um, game birds. Um, it's where I started my camera work and did a lot of nest camera, nest predation work. Uh, learned a lot about habitat and the importance of habitat on large plantations that manage for these quail and the realization of what that would do for entire ecosystems, not just the quail. So I, I went on and um, did my PhD. I had the opportunity actually to go straight into a PhD after my first year as a master's student. They, um, the project had its chances to, to elaborate and kind of expand. And so I, I went straight into a PhD. Um, and as I got near the end of my PhD, I really had this envisionment of going into the federal government, maybe working for a Ducks Unlimited. 
there was really not a lot of me thinking I was going to be a, a professor. In fact, um, everyone will tell you those first particularly three years of, of my grad degree, I was pretty much against going to a professor route. Um, and somewhere as I was teaching in that, that last year, I suddenly realized I had a skill set with, with students and more of a passion for education, which may have stemmed from the fact that I had tutored from when I was actually very young, particularly in math. Uh, my mom is an educator, so I was quite familiar with education. And I started to realize, hmm, maybe, maybe my impact in conservation wasn't what I had originally thought. Maybe it could be through students. And so I had an opportunity right after I finished my, my PhD to teach for a year at the University of Georgia. I taught a wildlife techniques class and a population dynamics class. And as I was doing that, I realized that was, that was maybe more appropriate fit than I, I had initially thought. And partway through that year, um, there was a, an advertisement for a bunch of different faculty positions. So I, I interviewed actually for, for several of them. I also interviewed for another position, a couple of positions that were not academic. And I kept coming back to maybe the academic route was the way to go. And I interviewed at the University of North Dakota and it was the right place, the right position. And it would get me to my dream that I had ever since I was 13, which was to land in the prairie potholes. I wanted to be, I wanted to be in North Dakota, South Dakota or Montana because that's where the ducks are. And that's what I had the chance to do. They offered me, offered me the job, and I, um, I excitedly, you know, jumped on that opportunity as a fairly newly minted PhD, and have had a chance to really shape the program here at, at the University of North Dakota, and eventually get back to my my heart and soul of of, of ducks, um, namely through my collaborations with Ducks Unlimited and then the Hudson Bay Project with going north and getting to work on snow geese. And so um, in addition to that, I get to work with a lot of folks doing um, wetlands and waterfowl work because it's right here in my backyard. I get to train next generations of students doing that, um, which has become sort of the thing that really, really has made me tick. And so that's what got me here um, in this world and doing waterfall work and whatnot. I, I took a few, you know, less straight paths to get there. But um, in many ways, I'm, I'm living the dream, if you would. That's awesome. It's an awesome story. And there's a lot of things I could ask you about along that, along that path. But I think what I'll just do is, is say, I'm glad you finally made it back to waterfowl uh, and that part of your dream. We are certainly better as a profession for having you in it. So, so thank you for all that, especially the, the training of the students, the new research that you're doing. It's all really cool, really exciting. And, and uh, yeah, it's great to, great to have you. Great to have you on this particular episode. Right, Carla, let's go to you now and have you provide the same kind of introduction of how you came to this field, how you became um, enamored with waterfowl, wetlands, and then, and, and then your career path. To where you are now. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Um, well, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a biologist since, I don't know, probably seven or eight years old. Um, and I guess I always thought people knew what they wanted to do their entire life. And not until I became older did I realize, no, not everybody knows what their career path's going to be. But I knew right away what I wanted to do. And I, you know, I really attribute that to spending a lot of time outdoors. I spent a tremendous amount of time on my grandparents' cattle ranch in Alberta. So I grew up in Calgary. I grew up in the city, uh, but spent a lot of my weekends, all my summer holidays, 
traipsing around the foothills of Alberta on my grandparents' cattle ranch. And that's where I just absolutely fell in love with uh, the grasslands, with wildlife, and knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, but my career path and my education path certainly wasn't not a direct line. Um, I, right after high school, enrolled into a biology program at the University of Calgary. Uh, so I got thrown into these massive classes where you're in with pre-med, etc. And it was like this, you know, was not what I envisioned as wildlife, you know, training and education. And I be quickly became very disillusioned <laughs> with, with this. And, uh, you know, my grades were very poor. I wasn't, I, technically I wasn't kicked out, but I certainly wasn't doing very well. <laughs> So I decided to take a bit of a pause and think about, okay, well, this isn't working for me, but I still know what I want to do. So I took a step back and I actually enrolled within a uh, college in Southern Alberta in Lethbridge, a town or city called Lethbridge. And it was Lethbridge College and they had a uh, wildlife technician diploma. So it was a two-year program. Very applied, which is exactly what I wanted. So, you know, taking ecology, botany, uh, you know, learning about uh, fish, birds, doing field research. And that was exactly what I wanted. And that gave me uh, the foundation uh, to go on. So from there, uh, I transferred to the University of Montana and did my undergraduate work in, in wildlife at the University of Montana in Missoula. And at that point, I had an opportunity to to go and work uh, at Delta Marsh. And so I went and worked at Delta Marsh Research Station. And that was really my first introduction to wetlands and waterfowl. And I just fell in love with it. I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and I actually spent three summers there. So uh, I spent three summers there and it was it was during my time there that I understood that, you know what, I think I can go on and do graduate work because I had at that point no desire to go on to do graduate work. But, um, you know, I was interacting with master's and Ph.D. students and saw what they were doing. I thought it was pretty interesting. And so that's when I decided to go on, started my master's at the University of Saskatchewan, looking at waterfowl nest predation, uh, working in the parkland of, of Saskatchewan. And then uh, great fortune, uh, the Ducks Unlimited Canada started where they were looking for a PhD uh, student to work on uh, pintail uh, reproductive work in southern Alberta. And I applied and I got it. So I started my PhD working on pintail ecology. Uh, I was focused on some Ducks Unlimited projects in uh, southern Alberta near Brooks. And I con continued my, my work at University of Saskatchewan, but that was where I did my PhD. At the same time during all of this, uh, I was married. And uh, my husband, who also works for Ducks Unlimited Canada, is a research scientist. And so he... Uh, was working in Winnipeg, and I was at uh, University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. So we did not live together for the first five years we were married because I was going to school and he was working. He was working here. And so when I'd finished all my coursework at U of S, I asked DU whether I could, you know, borrow a cubicle in the head office to finish writing up my thesis. 
And that's how I ended up in the office. And uh, I'd been there maybe six months or so. I mean, certainly they knew who I was because they were funding my research. Uh, but I'd been there about six months and I got a phone call one afternoon that says, uh, you know, um, Dr. Brian Gray wants you to come up and talk to him. So I said, okay. So I'll go upstairs to the executive area. And he offered me a part-time job working on national, uh, being a national conservation uh, biologist for, for DU Canada. And so I was working about two days a week, I think I started, and then it quickly grew to a five-day-a-week uh, kind of venture. And that was how my career started with DU Canada, was simply I started finishing my thesis in a cubicle in the building and was offered a part-time job, and now I'm CEO. So you just never know what your career path's going to be. That's right. So the, the moral of that story, there's a number of them there, but the key one there at the end is that if they open that door even a little bit, you bust right on through it, right? Yeah, absolutely. That is it. Yeah, well, that's cool. I've, I've Carla, you and I have known one another for 20 plus years now, uh, and, and I'm picking up on some parts of your life story that I, I didn't know about, which is cool in its, in its own right. Um, I also have to, uh, I'll hear about it if I don't do this. One of the other people that has appeared on two, on both podcasts is your colleague up there, Dr. Scott Stevens. Scott and I go way back. And of course, he would never let me live that down if I forgot to mention his <laughs> name. So, <laughs> Good thing you corrected that. <laughs> That's right. Scott has appeared on a number of episodes with us. I think he's also been on, on in the reads, the DU Canada podcast. So um, Casey, let's go to you now and, uh, and, same same question, same opportunity for you. Uh, you you are. I guess the one thing I'll, I'll say right here for our, for our our listeners that um, that don't know each of our our guests personally, we have our three guests represent sort of different people that are at different parts of their their career. Um, Carla, I I think it would be fair to say is among the more senior, most senior of these three in career wise, uh, and then Susan is is obviously mid career, and and then Casey is a PhD student, you know, at the very start of her career. So these stories that they that they share are going to be obviously different. So, Casey, um, tell us your story. Well, I think I had kind of the opposite Pennsylvania experience uh, from Susan. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, just north of Philly, kind of in suburbia. And I, I definitely had more of the millennial experience. I, my, my mom was a music teacher. My dad was kind of a business executive and I did not grow up in, in the outdoors. I, uh, I grew up watching the outdoors on TV pretty much. Uh, a lot of Steve Irwin in my childhood and a lot of, uh, Animal Planet. And I would just beg my mom to go to the, we had a little state park, Tyler State Park near our house. And I would just beg to go there all the time. She would be like, why do you want to go out there? And, uh, you know, she, they liked feeding the birds, but they were never really that interested in hiking or camping or hunting or fishing. And it wasn't until I got to college, I, I knew I liked birds and I knew I wanted to work in some capacity with animals, but I thought the only avenue that you could go was being a vet. Uh, so I chose an undergrad institution that had a good pre-vet program, which was Virginia Tech. And luckily, they also happened to have an excellent wildlife program. Um, so when I first got there, I actually started out as a chemistry major. And I discovered the Wildlife Society, the undergraduate chapter. And as soon as I attended a meeting, I, I, I realized I found my people and immediately changed my major. Um, 
And I, I got into birding while I was there. I didn't realize that people went out and kind of competitively looked at birds while, uh, for fun. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit yesterday. I, the, every hobby that I was interested in was pretty male dominated. I, when I was really young, I was really interested in falconry and I really wanted to get into falconry. And I went to a meeting and was, it was all 40 plus white men. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing here? I'm 13. And then I got into birding and I, I thought for a while I wanted to be a birding field guide. And that was a very male dominated field as well. And then I took a population dynamics class in undergrad and that I realized that was kind of the niche that I wanted to fall into. And that actually is what led me to ducks. Uh, I liked the population side of things. I liked the kind of statistics and math side of things. And so the duck world is kind of where that got its a burgeoning start. So I looked for graduate programs along those lines and I ended up at Colorado State. Um, and then while I was doing my master's there, we ended up with uh, the an endowed chair in waterfowl and wetlands ecology, Dave Coons. And I thought, you know, I should probably try to stay here. He's yeah. <laughs> he'd be a pretty, pretty nice person to work with. So we actually worked together to get the funding for my PhD, um, which was an excellent experience for me as a, a fresh, you know, a graduate student to, to get that funding. And uh, I didn't start hunting. I didn't start hiking or camping until I got to college. I remember my first camping trip was along the Appalachian Trail and I, everybody around me told me that that's where two murders had happened a couple years ago and they never caught the person. So it was a while after that before I went hiking or camping again. Um, and then I started hunting once I got into the duck world and I had some, some more of those doors kind of open to me because there are some more mentors around. It's, it's tough to get into on your own, as I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the gist of it. Thank you for that, Casey. W one follow-up question here. How far along are you in your in your PhD program? I am in year two. So I've got one more field season next summer and then at least a year or so of writing everything up. And is it fair for me to ask you, where do you see yourself in five years? Do you, do you get that question often? I always used to hate that question. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's why I'm staying in school as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any idea which route you want to go? I am a little bit like Susan in that I'm thinking that academia maybe is not the route for me right now, but uh, we'll see is the, is the answer I'll give for now. <laughs> I was kind of the same way in that, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I kind of went through, I thought I might want to go into academia then, but then things just didn't align. And then once I was out of academia for a number of years, I'm like, nah, you know, it's, I'm kind of good where I am. So, but things can change as we've heard from, from, from Carla and Susan and so many other people, just, uh, events, random events can change your mind about certain things. Seems like the wildlife profession is more about timing than anything else. What's actually going to be out there once I graduate? Hopefully it's the opportunity that you want when the, when the time comes. So let's move on now to uh, uh, some more targeted questions related to this, this topic. Uh, and I want to start um, with, with just a fundamental question. Uh, and we're going to mix it up here. Car Carla, I'm going to go to you first on this one. Um, from your perspective, why is it important and beneficial that we not only have women among our profession, but that we also actively seek and encourage it? Sure. Great question. Uh, very timely. Um, I mean, I guess there's a, there's a few reasons for me. Um, besides the fact that I believe it's important that the workforce should really reflect 
the clientele that we're serving, the supporters. So for the supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada, I think it's important that the the folks who work with us and for us um, reflect reflect that community. But, you know, there's also a number of studies that have been done that demonstrate that diverse teams generally have stronger performance. Um, research has shown that teams with women in them tend to perform very well by building stronger relationships and creating successful work processes. And, you know, and the other thing is it just, you know, you want to have the best talent. So you want to have a very wide talent pool. So you certainly, in my mind, you don't want to restrict who you're thinking about um, for, for an employee. So you want to have a wide talent pool. You want to bring different perspectives to the table, uh, enhance collaboration, um, and really have and when once you have that diverse workforce, it's it's actually easier to for recruitment and retention purposes within the workforce. Susan, I want to give you an opportunity to answer that question as well. Honestly, I'm not sure I can add too much to that because I I see it as you know it's diversity is a key. Um, more women like other minorities, they bring in different thinking, uh, different ways to do things. And when you're faced with the conservation challenges that we see um, today, we need more creative strategies to do things. And so I see bringing you know people that that maybe approach things differently um, together and and get us out of sometimes the way we've always done it. Um, kind of mentality. And so I think having increased numbers of women and minorities does that. And, and Casey, again, you represent the youngest of the of the three generations uh, here. Anything to add to that from your perspective? Well, I think also uh, there's a lot of research showing that women make up one of the most quickly increasing demographics of hunters. And, you know, in a time when hunters have been declining for the last several decades, um, we not only need to bring as many people into that sport as we can, but also make sure the people who are managing the public resources that are hunted uh, represent the people that are actually doing the hunting. And I think that's kind of scary for some people because it might mean relinquishing a little bit of their decision-making power, but I think it only benefits the users if there are more diverse opinions. And and another part of that is that I'm sure we'll talk about later is uh, the retention of, of you know, more diverse groups in, in these fields. We see um, kind of a leaky pipeline effect where we're not having as many women at higher levels. Um, but that, you know, that brings about huge costs in training and, and uh, of new employees for, for any agencies that are losing those people. So there's, there's actual financial repercussions to some of this as well. Carla, you, you kind of mentioned some research showing the, the, the increased productivity or the, the greater value of, of having women in, in groups. And, and I've seen some things recently that kind of draw an analogy between a diverse workforce and biodiversity and how we try to conserve and achieve biodiversity. And we, and we don't try to achieve biodiversity just because we think it's a good thing to do. It's because those systems that are generally more diverse are more resilient, more productive, and they're able to withstand perturbations or un, you know, unexpected events. And, and so I've seen that analogy applied to kind of social diversity, social inclusion. And, and to me, it resonates. It resonates very well. Have you, have you heard that much? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a really good analogy. It just seems that teams that are mixed of, you know, male and female um, teammates seem to perform better um, for whatever reason. And, you know, I, I first noticed it when I was putting together field crews in the summer 
Um, I, all of my field crews were pretty mixed, male and female, and it just seemed like there was a better dynamic uh, within those groups. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's a great analogy. Repeatedly throughout this, I think we'll probably need to kind of pause and, and reflect and just say we clearly recognize that this conversation about diversity and inclusion extends well beyond just gender. And so we, we just want to want to. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Emphasize that again. We'll get to those discussions too. Um, and and so again, I've we've talked about each of you representing kind of different different parts of your career, the different times in your career, and so it also means that you kind of came through, came up through the workforce at different times, different through different eras, and so let's talk about about that and how your perspectives, how your experiences with respect to trying to make it in a field that was predominantly men. Let's talk about how that may have differed. And so, Carla, let's, let's again start with you since you would have come through kind of the, the earliest. Yeah, great question. And I often get asked this question. I'm never quite sure how to answer it because, you know, certainly when I started, um, most of my fellow employees were men by far. Um, but it never really bothered me. It wasn't something I ever focused on. Um, maybe it's just because, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty stubborn person, I guess, but I didn't see it as a barrier. Uh, typically I was often the only woman in the room for meetings and to be truthful, sometimes I still am. Sometimes I still am the only woman there. Um, I have always been the type of person who likes to come into, uh, any kind of meeting, um, or gathering to be very prepared and to be honest, it has served me very well in those kinds of environments to when you walk in there knowing your stuff and being confident that you know your stuff, um, it serves you well. 
Um, I've learned over the years to express my opinion. I'll listen to others, but I'll defend my position if I truly think it needs to be heard. So I wouldn't say it's been a barrier. Um, I think, you know, I think um, having a great education behind you really helps. Having those letters behind your name gives you the credibility before you ever walk in the room. Susan, you came along a a few years after Carla, and by the time you enrolled in university, I would imagine, um, whether this was obvious to you or not, I don't know if you would have come through at a time when I think the number of women, the percentage of women in undergraduate programs, graduate programs within this field would have been on the increase a little bit. Uh, But nevertheless, did you face any, any any obstacles? Did you have second thoughts about going into this field, you know, uh, continuing on in this, in this field as you came up through it? Yeah. Um, I'll just preface this kind of way Carla did though, too. I'll be honest. I've always walked to a beat of the, um, of my own drum and, um, and while being in some of these environments where I was the only, only female in the room or only one, um, it didn't, it didn't bother me sometimes the way that maybe it would bother others. But a lot of that's because I grew up with my dad's hunting buddies, white males. Um, and I was raised in an environment where I was often the only female or my sister and I were the only females um, present. But it was a very positive one that allowed me to, to see that that environment could um, foster, um, you know, my success. And so that that helped give me that confidence that Carla talks about, that you can you can be in that room and even though you don't look like everybody else, you still have your role, you still have your place and you can still be successful. And I think that helped when I got into other places where maybe the environment wasn't as nurturing. Um, and so I, I remember though, um, kind of laughing when I first got my my technician jobs with the the Pennsylvania Game Commission, we'd go out and like I was initially the only female you know, doing some of the goose banding and things like that. And then there was like one other woman who would be there some of the times and, you know, everyone teasing, oh, you know, there's actually chances for roommates here because, you know, typically there was only one woman on the crew at any time. And so that was, that was an interesting bit. Um, I think that probably my, my biggest challenges, and I see this today still some, um, I, I've, graduate school was probably where the, the largest challenges for me came and a little bit when I started here at, at UND. Um, I've been in several scenarios where, unfortunately, I've kind of been deemed the little girl. Um, I'm relatively young in the profession, and I was this little girl, this little biologist. I couldn't fly drones or, you know, I couldn't know anything about these game birds because maybe I was a northerner or whatever with some of the quail. And and that was very frustrating, um, particularly during my my graduate work. Um, I had helpful advisors who were very supportive, but I wasn't always around st- other students or um, other other researchers that were as nurturing as those I had grown up with. And so there was one point in my, my PhD, I had started as a master's student, had the chance to go straight to that PhD, and I really wavered. Um, I really wasn't sure if I wanted to keep going for the PhD. Um, I wasn't sure if like this game bird group was really um, what what was going to help me thrive. Um, and my husband and a few really important mentors that I had along the way, particularly for my undergrad as well as family, said, "You know what? Keep pushing on. 
you'll be successful. You have the skills, you know, and a lot of times I was challenged maybe because people felt threatened of me or they were uncomfortable because I, I wasn't that same, you know, everything. I didn't look the same. I didn't act the same. I didn't do things the old way, the regular way. Um, but it served me well. I per- persevered and I'm really appreciative for those who, who helped me. Um, I continue, though, to see that even here in North Dakota, um, breaking into some of the waterfall world, I'll go to meetings and here I am sitting here with waterfall work right in my backyard or game birds that I'm, I've got the experience to do. And I'll, I'll be the one in the room and then they send the project to a faculty member out of state who wasn't even sitting there. And my ideas go right there. Um, and for whatever reasons that happens, um, that's been a very frustrating, frustrating place to be. Um, but at the same token, like I prefaced it, I walk to the beat of my own drum. And when one door closes, I go find another one. Um, and I've really prided myself in finding environments that want women and minorities to succeed, want to be in groups that it doesn't matter what you look like or even sometimes how you come to the table with accomplishing tasks, they want to see success. And, you know, that, that's helped me quite a bit. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Susan. Uh, Casey, the millennial in the group, uh, by the time you enrolled in your, in your undergraduate program, do you remember, can you approximate about what the ratio of, of uh, men to women was? Yeah, I would say it was, it was pretty 50, 50 and, it was 50-50 as well, not just in terms of gender, but also in terms of like people's background and how they got into it. There were about half of them were the more traditional hook and bullet and half of them were kind of the same as me, the the crunchy vegetarians who grew up watching Animal Planet. And it was interesting to watch how people kind of evolved throughout that those four years and in, in terms of what they were interested in. But yeah, I, I, there were very few moments, especially during undergrad, where I questioned what I wanted to do based on, you know, being the other or the only kind of person. So it's probably fair to say then that that greater diversity at that, at that, at that time well, when you were coming through actually encouraged you and, and did eliminate, eliminated some of the, what might have been barriers or, or obstructions that have, could have been there in previous years, right? Yeah. And I think the fact that I saw people who looked like me doing what I wanted to do. I mean, most of the people I worked for in technician jobs were women. Most of my favorite professors were women. Um, And, you know, I don't know if that's just because I was drawn to them because they looked like me or there just were more of them. But the more I thought about it as I went further into my, you know, into graduate school, the more I realized how important that was as an undergrad, as a very impressionable, kind of shy, awkward undergrad. No, I think that's a great point. And I I fully believe that, I fully agree with you that, uh, and I think Carla, maybe Susan, maybe both of them have even referenced this in an earlier answer, that being able to see someone that looks like you gives you a great deal of confidence if it's in something that you want to do. You know, it just, it gives you some hope. Uh, and so I think that's really important. I'm glad you brought that out. I want to I want to go to a question now that that actually Susan's answer a minute ago provides a good segue to. Uh, and, and Carla, I'll direct this to you. Uh, and then Susan, if you have anything else to add, uh, certainly please do so. But it deals with it deals with the issue of certain prejudices that you may have faced or may fa- may continue to face as a woman in this field, which has been predominantly and continues to be predominantly uh, male. So any any prejudices that you faced coming up through your career that you continue to face? 
Um, I, I mean, I think sometimes our people are a bit surprised that I'm in the positions I'm in. I mean, even now uh, in the CEO position, I'll sometimes go to a meeting or a gathering of folks who, who don't know me, don't know who I am, and somebody will inevitably come up to me and start chatting with me and and they don't know who I am and they'll start talking and, and then they'll get around to asking me, oh, so what do you do for DU? And then I'll say to them, well, I'm the CEO. And then you can just see this panic <laughs> in their eyes. <laughs> absolute, they start you, what did I say? <laughs> yeah, absolute terror. And they're quickly going through the last 10 minutes of conversation in their head. It's like, what did I say? What did I say? What did yeah. I say? But I usually will bring out the fact that I'm CEO before they dig themselves in too big of a hole. But, you know, I, I always find that a bit amusing. <laughs> Uh, that's an interesting story. So um, any of those prejudices that you may have faced, we've kind of heard uh, you and Susan both say that you've always kind of considered yourselves very determined, very confident individuals. Um, but, but then Casey kind of described herself as being a bit more reserved, a bit more maybe even uh, shy. For someone that may not have the determination, the personality as, as you, Carla, or, or you, Susan, you know, what, did, what advice do you give people for overcoming those prejudices that they uh, that they might face. Yes. So so I'm probably in an environment and a point where I, I deal with students trying to figure some of this out pretty regularly because I mean that's that's what a lot of college students are coming in and we're still um male biased here in in North Dakota in terms of our program that we're getting pretty close to a 50-50 male female but it was very much like a third of our students were female when I first started here. Um, and so I've gotten to watch some of that transition quite a bit here. Um, and, and I have seen this both with a variety of students, not just females, but uh, males too, but in particular the females um, with confidence, I, I try to help them see the things that they do really well and bring that out and say, you know, just go in there and show people what you can do. And I try to tell them a little bit of emphasizing that um, here, these are the skills you're good at. You know, you can actually do this. And I think it takes an environment like that when you have students who are not naturally confident, you need to help them understand where they where they bring something unique to the to the um, the arena to the table, you know. And I, I think that that's something that's an important step in our, the environment that we're creating, you know. Just because you don't have people that look like you doesn't mean you're not an important member. And so I spend a lot of time trying to help students recognize what their what their strengths are and and how that plays an important role in the profession and then helping them foster that so that they have the confidence to bring in and use those skills, those strengths. And so that's what, you know, I, I think we all need to do is, is try to create that environment. The other thing is we need to understand, especially as people are breaking into the profession, um, there's a substantial amount of everybody has to learn and everybody learns in different ways, but fostering a positive environment where you can learn that's friendly and you're not afraid to make mistakes. Um, I think that that's really, really important in the environments we create. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I felt confident because I was in an environment when I was young where I could look different, I could be different, but I could grow. And that's what we need a lot more of as we're trying to help particularly people maybe with less confidence or, or who might look different and, and need those extra little push and motivation. 
Casey, does any of any of those kind of tips or, or messages from Susan kind of resonate with you in the way you've thought about? And I guess uh, I should back up and ask, have you, being a millennial, coming through in a, in a more more diverse kind of um, cohort, have you still faced any, uh, you know, prejudices because uh, because you're a woman in an otherwise previously, at least traditionally, and I guess still, as we've talked about, male-dominated um, profession? I think the things that stand out to me the most are what we typically refer to as microaggressions. I mean, they're things that in the moment you kind of just brush off and then you think about them later and you're, you think, would that, would that have happened if I were a man? Like, for example, I've been to a DU uh, state convention where I was presenting on my research and I was the only woman and I walked into the room and everybody kind of turned and looked at me and this guy came up and said, are you lost? (laughs) Not lost. (laughs) Supposed to be here, but you know, having to verify that you are supposed to be here, it's kind of mentally taxing and, uh, just kind of the assumptions that people make, you know, my, my fiance is also in the waterfowl field and we've been to conferences together and, uh, I had a duck band on a necklace that I was wearing and somebody who was kind of an older person in the field, came up and said, oh, I see that's what you get when you hang out with the duck guy. And I was like, oh, well, I found this in my field play, actually. But, you know, just having to kind of over and over again verify that, yeah, you do belong here is exhausting. Um, but definitely having somebody, having a mentor or anybody in your field who's going to be that support for you and continue to let you know that you, you know, what you're doing is right. What you're doing is, is good and important is, you know, one of the main things I think that can help keep people, uh, in the field. So Casey, in those moments, when you, when people ask you those questions, are you, are you lost? Are you sure you're supposed to be here? Or they make a statement that, that, that implies a certain assumption about what you're, what you're doing. What goes through your mind at that, at that at that moment, because a lot, so much of kind of who we become and who we are is dictated by how we respond in an instant to certain situations that we find ourselves. So how do you, yeah, just what, what goes through your mind? How do you process that? How do you respond to that? A lot of times it's just disbelief. I, I constantly find myself kicking myself later for not saying anything because I'm just kind of in shock. There's, I have one more, <laughs> I'll, I'll stop. I was at Home <laughs> no. Depot buying uh chains and rope for rope dragging for nest searching and it was just a guy behind me in line and he kind of crept up and whispered in my ear what'd your boyfriend do to deserve this and I was like are you kidding me (laughs) (laughs) and you know in that moment I I almost never say anything because I'm just in shock and yeah I think developing a wittier response would be (laughs) beneficial Ultimately, I have to believe it just, it requires um, just unwavering confidence in yourself, right? Yeah, I think so. Susan or Carla, anything to add? No, I think, I think that covers, covers it. But uh, yeah, I think you're right, Mike, just having that, uh, that confidence in your own abilities and not to let other people's comments uh, bother you or, you know, perplex you. It's, it's really being confident in your own, in your own skin. I have a couple of uh, final questions here, and then we'll wrap up, wrap up this episode. And we have a lot more to discuss kind of going forward, and that'll be a second episode. Um, but let's talk about achievements. Um, uh, specifically, Susan, let's start with you. What do you consider some of your biggest achievements? 
I probably have two primary biggest achievements. One, um, you know, much like Carla, I have always kind of known what I wanted to do and where I wanted to land. I didn't maybe know all the details of this and specifics of things like being a professor or whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty proud that I've, I've made it here to the duck factory. I'm pretty proud to be kind of doing the thing that I, as a child, really aspired for. I think that's pretty, pretty cool to say hard work and, you know, being determined and whatnot, it, it does pay off. Even if there's not the straightest path or road bumps along the way, I, I've made it, if that makes sense. And probably the second biggest achievement is something I get to uh, maybe regularly experience is when I see my students succeed. That ended up, um, you know, has been absolutely the, the biggest thing. I watch a student even when they handle birds for the first time, they duck band, they find their first nest um, to all the way of they publish their first paper or they do their first presentation and it's it's successful or they get that job, the job they always wanted, or they're, they're actually doing some impactful conservation program. Um, watching that far and away has been probably one of my greatest achievements. Um, it's seeing that you, you have that impact. That's so cool. We're going to have a lot of professors on on this podcast as we go through this. And uh, every now and then I, I try to work that into our conversation, talking about the achievements of their of their students. And uh, I never get tired, especially when we're able to kind of do this little Zoom video and I'm actually able to see people's expressions. And, and, and I'll never get tired of seeing the enjoyment in, in seeing you and others describe the pride and the happiness that they get from seeing their students um, succeed. So thank you for that. Uh, Carla, what about you? Uh, some of your greatest achievements? I mean, certainly the conservation work that I've been able to be involved with through Ducks Unlimited Canada is the most rewarding for me. That was always what I wanted to do. Um, holding certain titles or positions within the organization was never, ever what drove me. Um, what drove me was doing conservation work on the ground. So um, that's been probably one of the most rewarding for me. But uh, I guess more recently, uh, the creation of the Ducks Unlimited Canada Endowed Chair is pretty special. So, you know, Casey's at, uh, working with one of the other chairs in Colorado. And so Ducks Unlimited Canada has just established this endowed chair at the University of Saskatchewan. And as I've mentioned uh, a couple of times today, I would not be where I am today or who I am today without the benefit of having a great education. So, you know, as I said, having those letters behind your name gives you great credibility when you walk into that room. And the fact that DU has been able to establish this chair and to provide the opportunity for future generations to receive a great education in the waterfowl and wildlife field gives me great pride. And, you know, as I said on the day that we announced this at our press conference, um, sometimes dreams do come true. And this was a dream for me. Well, that's, uh, I thank you. And I know of a ton of other people that thank you for all the work that you've done for Ducks Unlimited Canada and for your efforts in pushing forward to get that Ducks Unlimited Canada chair at the University of Saskatchewan. That's, that is most definitely something to be, to be proud of. So thank you for that. And, and in Casey, of course, you are um, still very early in your career, but nevertheless, I know you have some achievements that you're proud of. Share some of those with us. Yeah, it's pretty hard to follow Carla. Um, I, no, I, I had a hard time thinking about this, but I think 
my biggest overall achievement has been just getting to the point where I am right now. I I remember my freshman year of undergrad, a retired professor actually, you know, told me to change my major because I would never make it. It's a, not that I specifically wouldn't make it, but you'd never make any money. And it's hard to get into grad school. It's hard to get a job. And I just, I wanted to go to grad school. I wanted to get as far as I possibly could. And I think to, to be a part of kind of the conception of my PhD project um, was really meaningful to me. And it's a project I'm really passionate about. And um, have to kind of see it from beginning to end is really exciting and hopefully see the results of it eventually be turned into these best management practices for people who flood irrigate um, is going to be very re rewarding. Uh, and, you know, it's also resulted in a couple of really amazing uh, awards that are through, um, you know, the Wildlife Society and DU, the um, DU Canada. And I'm just really, really grateful for those. And, you know, it's also cool to look at the list of people who have gotten some of those awards and see how they've gotten a little bit more diverse over the years as well. If I remember this correctly, you are the current recipient of the Bruce Bat Fellowship Award. That that's correct. Yeah. Basically, yeah. And, and we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about these fellowship awards sort of in an ongoing basis in, in subsequent podcasts um, to to reward productive students, promising students such as you, Casey, for and helping to support uh, helping to support that research and your and your career and your education. So. Um, so thanks for sharing that, reminding me that I needed to mention that. Uh, Casey, the next question here I want to stay with you on, and it relates to who you see as being particularly influential in getting you to where you are. And I'm talking about, you know, naming individuals if you're comfortable doing that, uh, whether it be family or friends or, or your professional mentors. I think it's really important to acknowledge, uh, acknowledge those people. We all have some of those people uh, in, our, in our lives, and, and quite frankly, uh, you know, each of you will be that person for some other for some of the other people that are going to come come behind you. Um, so, this is an opportunity for for each of you to kind of acknowledge those people that were influential in in your lives, and also if you want to, Casey, if there if the element of kind of the challenges of being a woman in this field came up in any of those conversations with that person or those people, feel free to share to share those as well. The person who was one of my first mentors getting into the wildlife field uh, was my boss. I worked up on the Yukon Kuskokwim uh, Delta National Wildlife Refuge when, after my sophomore year of college. And Melissa Gabrielson uh, was the wildlife biologist up there at the time. And she hired me along with Kyle Spragans. And they they just like took me under their wing and seeing her in a role that I, I wanted to work for the refuges all, my all through undergrad and and still, and I just I thought it was amazing that she was up there running this field crew and doing incredible field research. And she she no longer works for them; she works for the Forest Service now. But we spent you know a whole summer in a tent just chatting about not specifically these issues, but things related to them. And that that was a huge influence on my career and life. Um, and again, my wildlife professors, a lot of them were women in undergrad and especially Marcella Kelly, who taught my population dynamics class, uh, is one of the greats. And she was a fantastic teacher, a fantastic mentor. And I'm sure many people would say the same. Um, there's, I can't believe how many female mentors I've had over the years, honestly. <laughs> and then the last one I'll say is my current PhD advisor, Dave, he's just, he's a gem of human, uh, and 
he is so supportive in everything and really takes the time to listen to issues like this or to topics about this and uh, to really be kind of a sponsor and a mentor for all of his students. Excellent. Uh, and so, Susan, let's go to you now. I think um, I got to start with my parents. Um, I think that they were some of the most influential. When you look at it, I've really turned out to be a nice 50-50 split of them with the educator of my mom and my dad and his conservation side of things. Um, and as a whole, my family making it so that the environment of, you know, taking maybe uh, paths less traveled was was a, a a totally okay thing to do. And that really helped along with my dad's hunting buddies. I mean, to let, you know, a couple young girls join the club um, was a very influential step for me to see that that opportunity exists. Um, When it came to, to college, I had three, um, three female ecologists, um, Pam Silver, uh, Margaret Voss and Lisa Mangel and and Margaret and I still are are very, very close. Um, They really shaped my thinking and, and encouraged me as a, as a, you know, aspiring wildlife biologist and an ecologist um, to, to, you know, just keep focused and keep going and to be good examples of, of people who are successful. Um, once I got here at UND, I've been really fortunate that we had, I had a, a former dean, she's now the interim uh, provost here at UND, um, Debbie Stores, who really took me under wing and helped me navigate the academic side of things and some of my stuff where I wanted to break into even the drone flying, which actually ended up being a, a bit more of challenging than, than I envisioned. Um, and she's been super supportive of me um, as I've navigated things. I also have, uh, uh, we have a new a director that does a program for new faculty, um, Ann Kelsch, who is always very supportive. And the support of being a, a mom and especially a new mom in the field um, a lot of that support comes from my husband, Chris, um, but he's not just been critical when it's come to my my two-year-old. You know, he's out there in the field with us, helps manage her so she can come along. Um, but he's he's been a critical part of my whole um, career, if you would, educationally. I met him my freshman year of college, and so he's seen me through undergraduate, through technician positions, and he's always been quick to volunteer, um, to be the extra set of hands we needed, to carry the heavy stuff, um, and really to support my students. And that's been one of the, the most fun parts is to have him right there alongside um you know, joining in, he's an educator as well and a biologist. And so um, having him there, um, it's a great representation of family support um, as well as um, getting the job done. And so I, I really appreciate all that he's done, um, you know, over the years to help me out and to keep to keep encouraging me on a daily basis and sometimes hourly when I need it. Um, and then I'm just really grateful for DU. Um, Ducks Unlimited has opened up so many opportunities for me to be um, doing work here in North Dakota and and help really bring me back to that dream. And particularly my collaborations with Kaylin Kimmick has been a, a real driving force in trying to help us with this topic of women in waterfowl and how to move the, for, um, the profession forward there. And she's been a real motivator to have a colleague like that who... Um, sees sort of some of the things that we have as obstacles ahead of us and and wants to break down barriers, uh, but also sees the positive things that we've been accomplishing and, and wants to highlight those and, and the women, the outstanding women that are doing that. And so that's been really, really helpful for me as I've, I've traveled my road. Susan, I'm glad you mentioned the, the influence that your dad's hunting buddies, and I'm guessing most of those were men, that they had on you. And I think that's a really powerful message, and I hope 
the hunters, the, the male hunters, the, all hunters are, that are listening to this, they're really here and pay attention to is the, the, the influence that we can have and how we can fundamentally shape whether a, a certain situation, whether a duck blind or whether any other hunting experience is welcoming uh, to women or young girls, as was the age, as was the age whenever you came into it, um, Susan, and and the other connection to that is those impressions that those environments that they kind of helped create welcoming environments led you to continue on into this career, and now you are doing, and Carla as well, and soon to be Casey, you all are going to be doing fantastic work to support the resource that all hunters love and and spend so much of their time and resources um you know protecting and conserving and so you know whether we're, we're male or female it's, it's really our obligation uh to make the make the environment as welcoming as possible because you, know, you three are great examples of of what can come of that and the great success that it can lead to so thank you for, for bringing that out carla let's conclude with you uh in in regard to who are some of the more influential people in in your life that you uh, need to give credit to well, thanks for this opportunity to do this, Mike. So there's been many, um, and surprisingly, or maybe not, um, they're all men. And as I've been listening to Casey and Susan talk, and it's probably because of my age and when I got into this field, I actually can't think of any female professors that I took classes from, which is pretty surprising, actually. And I didn't really realize that till I heard the two of you talking and it's like, wow, I can't actually think of any that I took classes from, you know? So, you know, for me, uh, it started off right when I was, uh, went to that two year college, uh, after having my disappointing experience at my first time at university, when I went down to Lethbridge and took this ecology class from an instructor called Ron Beck. And he, opened my eyes to what ecology was and uh, that that gave me the solid footing I needed. Um, from there, uh, my advisor at my undergrad advisor at University of Montana, Dan Pletcher, um, really pushed me and encouraged me to reach for higher goals for things that I never even thought about for myself. And then when I went to uh, Delta Waterfowl um, for three summers, Mike Anderson, Bruce Batt, and Henry Merkin, um, you know, three sort of key people in the waterfowl field. And it's so great to hear that Casey's had the Bruce Batt Fellowship. And uh, Bruce was one of my mentors who encouraged me to go on to do graduate work. And then Bob Clark, my graduate advisor, taught me so many life lessons um, beyond just being a good researcher and scientist. There were so many other things he taught me. And then most recently, uh, Greg Sakanik, who is our previous CEO, he really pushed me hard to apply for the CEO position. I initially said no, 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 no. And he just kept saying, well, I'm not taking no for an answer. So he would have just appeared in my door every couple of days and go, I'm not taking no for an answer. <laughs> and so, you know, he really supported me. Um, so all of these people, all of them saw something in me that I didn't even see myself. And so I am forever grateful for them giving me that gift. I knew Greg was a good man. This proves that he was even better than I thought. So good on Greg and good on you. Carla, you mentioned that you don't recall any 
female professors or teachers of any kind during your schooling. So it's, it's probably worth mentioning now that we've certainly seen a few changes in this regard with Susan, now a tenured professor in Waterfowl, and a few other women in academia across the U.S. But, you know, we would also be remiss if we didn't give at least some brief mention to the, the women within, within conservation and science positions in our organizations, in, in Ducks Unlimited organizations. And so within DU Inc., I think we'll just give a, a few mentions to, to people here uh, at the very top. Doctor uh, within conservation, Dr. Karen Waldrop is our new chief conservation officer. We have a relatively new ecosystem services scientist uh, position, and that's held by Dr. Ellen Herbert. Caitlin Kimmick, who we've heard referenced already on, on this episode and has been instrumental in advancing this particular conversation, is our manager of conservation planning for the Great Plains region. And then on the volunteer side, we have Dr. Christine Thomas, who is the chair of the Conservation Programs Committee. So that's an exciting development. I think, uh, I think we learned that she was just reappointed to that position by, by our president. And, and then we, of course, have numerous other women serving in regional biologist positions within Ducks Unlimited uh, across the U.S. And, I, you know, I don't want to go into listing names of those because there's always a chance that we will uh, we'll forget someone. But a couple of those have already been featured on this podcast, and we hope to get many more on in the future. Also on the DU de Mexico side, we have Gabriela de la Fuente. She's the assistant director. They have a, a small staff down there, and I think there are a couple of other women serving on that staff. But so within within DU, DU Inc., DU de Mexico, we've seen a few changes and are happy about those. And so, Carla, I know you've had some women uh, come on staff within DU Canada and IWWR as well, right? Yeah, we certainly have. And things have certainly changed over the you know 23 years that I've worked for Ducks Unlimited Canada. Um, so on our executive leadership team, half of the executive leadership team are women. Uh, I am the first female CEO for Ducks Unlimited Canada as well. We have, uh, just like uh, you do, we have a couple of women on our science uh, group in IWWR. And I guess where I've seen some of the biggest change over the last 20 years is the the number of women moving into our conservation programs into what we would traditionally probably wouldn't think of uh, the positions being held by women, uh, land negotiators, uh, some of our agrologists, a number of our agrologists are women, and more and more of our engineers are women as well. So we're certainly seeing women moving into positions uh, that traditionally we haven't seen filled by females. That's exciting. And, and hearing you mention some of those other positions reminds me that there are a number of women serving in those similar positions within, within the states. And again, um, to save us from the shame of having forgotten uh, important people, we'll we'll not name all to attempt to name all those people, but it is exciting to have them amongst the conservation and science ranks. And and you know we can look beyond Ducks Unlimited to the many women that are now in joint venture positions, whether they are joint venture coordinator positions, joint venture science coordinator positions, communication positions within within the joint ventures, uh, federal and state agencies. And, you know, we've seen this is all clear, clear evidence that we've seen some positive movement in this regard with respect to 
gender diversity within our profession. And it's certainly something to be excited about. But with that said, we still have more work to do and we'll continue to talk about that, you know, kind of as we go forward in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This has been a fun conversation. I really appreciate the three of you spending um, going on about 90 minutes now that we have in total been been on the phone. We had a few technical difficulties along the way, but we overcame those. We have a lot more to to discuss on, on the next episode. We're going to talk uh, about women in hunting, some of your own experiences, and then kind of um, some 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 thoughts that you may have in regard to that. We're going to also talk about ongoing efforts to promote gender diversity in the waterfowl profession. There are actually some initiatives, some organized efforts underway, and as well as the natural resources field uh, more broadly. There are also efforts in, in that regard. Uh, and then importantly, we're going to give you additional opportunities to provide some advice to either uh, young women that may be considering a career in waterfowl, wetlands conservation, or natural resources conservation, uh, as well as those that may already be in this in this in this field, but maybe early in their in their career, and just have you uh, give you an opportunity to provide them with some key advice related to certain certain questions. So, um, with that, we're going to close. And so, Susan, Carla, Casey. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your time and and sharing your insights. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. We extend a very special thanks to our guest on today's show, Dr. Susan ellis Feligi of the University of North Dakota, Dr. Carla Gwynn, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and Casey Setash, PhD student at Colorado State University. Now, we thank each of them for giving of their time and for giving of their expertise, their insights, and their experience. It's been a great message, and we look forward to bringing you more in our next episode. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, who does all the work behind the scenes to get these podcasts edited and out to you. And then, of course, you, the listener, you're the most important part of this venture. We thank you for your time as well. We thank you for spending with us, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. The next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. 
visit campuswaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.